You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12s. This is Corbin Smith of Locked On Seahawks along with Nick Lee. Happy Blue Friday, wrapping up the week. It's been a pretty crazy one at that. Hopefully, we can bring some positivity to your life with this podcast. This episode is brought to you by Built Bar, the delicious protein bar with low carbs, low calories, and it's gluten-free. Delicious. Go to BuiltBar.com, and you can get $10 off your first order with the code Locked On. Now let's get to our lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. I just mentioned it's been a pretty difficult week for everybody across the country, but like yesterday, some good news trickling in for the Seahawks, and this time it's about one of their star players, K.J. Wright, who Pete Carroll indicated earlier had underwent shoulder surgery in this offseason, and he's in the middle of his recovery. But speaking on Sports Radio KJR 950 on Thursday, Wright indicated he's making really good progress, and he fully anticipates that he will be ready for week one. Even if it starts on time, he's expecting he will be ready to go and in the lineup. And that's now two of the last three years he's, he's had a, 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 been a bit banged up. And, and he had a knee issue for most of 20, 2018, now shoulder. Obviously, he isn't 25 years old anymore. Um, but he also has shown he can bounce back. And like we've seen, um, I think it was late April, early May, when they announced that he had had surgery and there's no timetable for his return. And so here we are just a month later, and they're saying, all right, he's going to be ready for week one. Um, but that's a really good sign, especially for someone who's going to be playing in his th- age 31 season. And we need to take the time to appreciate real fast, like what KJ Wright did last year. We wrote him off. I did too. Um, you know, he's aging. He's done. That that injury is going to be tough to come back from at that age. With how not not so much that he's super old, but how much mileage he's gone through. And uh, you know, maybe don't bring him back on a contract. And, and they ended up doing that. They they were loyal to him. Brought him back. And he had a career year. He had a career year at 30 years old. Set set a career high with 132 tackles. And in my opinion, should have been. Um, and a heavy considerate for the Pro Bowl. Um, so it doesn't get enough appreciation. One of the last remaining soldiers from that Super Bowl run. Um, I know the Jordan Brooks draft sounds like the, the end for KJ Wright could be coming soon, but don't count him out quite yet. And I think 2020 has some good – I think KJ Wright has some good football left and that we could see that in 2020. And Jock Schneider mentioned this earlier on a radio interview that there has been discussion about moving him to Sam Linebacker. So – you look at what he did last year. You mentioned all those career highs, career highs in interceptions, career high in passes defense, career high in tackles. K.J. Wright really did have an excellent season bouncing back from just playing five regular season games the year before. Maybe we shouldn't have been surprised because when he was actually healthy at the end of the 2018 season, he was arguably Seattle's best player in that playoff loss to the Cowboys. He had that incredible end zone interception that – really kept the Seahawks in the game late and unfortunately couldn't find a way to get the victory. But all last year, you know, he's a player that he continues to lose a step or two and he's never been the most athletic linebacker, but he gets away with it because of his incredible instincts and his savvy out there. And he puts himself in position to make plays. And we saw that time and time again last year. I think the Sam linebacker spot is an excellent place to put him at, but what complicates matters now is that Bruce Irvin told reporters he expects to play that Sam linebacker spot like he did his first four years in Seattle. And then you've got Jordan Brooks, a player that I think absolutely 
could make a run for snaps at weak side linebacker on day one, even without OTAs and minicamp. With what I've watched on film, I've fallen in love with him as a guy that can come in right away. I mean, he started for four years at Texas Tech on a defense that didn't have a ton of talent around him, and he's just an absolute playmaker, sideline to sideline speed, and He's going to have a tough time getting on the field, though, because if Bruce Irvin's going to be playing that Sam Backer position and K.J. Wright's there, they're not just going to throw K.J. Wright on the bench. And so it's one of those things. It's a good problem to have, but it's going to be really interesting to see how they divvy up reps there. I personally think Bruce Irvin should just be playing the Leo defensive end position at this point, but it sounds like from what he told reporters, at least for now, they're wanting to use him in the same role they did in his first stint with the team. And looking at the schedule, you know, the, the Seahawks are sure as heck going to need K.J. right in that first game. We're talking week one, Matt, Ryan, Todd Gurley now in Atlanta. That's quite an offense to deal with, and you want all your horses uh, in the stable for that game. And so having him ready for week one, I think it's right out of the gates. The That week one game against the Falcons is going to be, I think, one of their tougher games. When we count it, it's a 10 a.m. game in Atlanta. The Falcons have played the Seahawks tough. Matt Ryan's a very talented quarterback. That offense is usually – humming pretty good inside the dome. So having him ready specifically for that game is pretty big. Yeah, especially when you don't have OTAs in minicamp. You want your veterans that have been through the rigors of an NFL season to be out there on the field. So for a player like Jordan Brooks, maybe you can wean him into the lineup. And again, that's one reason I've been intrigued by the idea of K.J. Wright playing Sam because you can still get him a fairly extensive number of snaps, but you can also get your young players, Brooks, maybe Cody Barton, some snaps out there as well. The guys that are the future of your linebacking core. Nonetheless, entering the last year of his contract, this is a big deal that K.J. Wright looks like he's ahead of schedule. He's going to be ready to return at some point in training camp and be able to play in week one. Sounds like he's very optimistic about that. So, any way you slice it, that's good news for the Seahawks, regardless of what they choose to do with him. He's going to be on the field. Just got to figure out if it's going to be the weak side linebacker spot or the Sam linebacker spot. When we come back for the second quarter in the latest Turn Back the Clock segment, we're going back to one of Nick's favorite years, 2007. Honestly, this is a pretty darn good year. The year after, not so much. Uh, just ask the economy about that. But we're going to go back and look at 2007 from a Seahawks perspective and maybe some non-football topics as well. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. As an avid weightlifter and distance runner, I'm always looking for an edge when it comes to nutrition, seeking quality tasting protein bars without crazy additives. Since being diagnosed with celiac disease, my options have been pretty limited. Enter in the Built Bar, a low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, gluten-free protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Built Bar comes in 16 amazing flavors. My personal favorite is the peanut butter brownie, which is 20 grams of protein and just 3 grams of sugar and 3 grams of net carbs. Since I had my first one, I won't go without it before hitting my squat rack or going for a jog. All Built Bars are 100% chocolate, nut and gluten free, soft and easy to chew, and don't have the nasty aftertaste associated with most protein bars. Sound too good to be true? Go to BuiltBar.com and check out all their flavor options. You can build your own custom box and new flavors will be coming out May 10th. Try this delicious product for yourself and change your exercise game by using promo code LOCKEDON and get $10 off your first box at BuiltBar.com. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Joining me, Nick Rockin' Lee on your screen as well. 
fired up for this Blue Friday show. Later in the third quarter, we're going to continue our top 100 Seahawks countdown. We've knocked out the first 10 out of 100. We're now going to be moving to 90 to 86. Going to have some old school flair in this upcoming five-player list coming up. But first, it's time for our Turn Back the Clock segment. We've done a few of these already this week, and it's just a lot of fun looking back at earlier years in Seahawks history. And the first two we've looked at have been years that are very rarely talked about. It wasn't like a Super Bowl winning season or even an NFC West winning season. Well, that's going to change today. We are going to 2007. We're drawing these years out of a hat, and we just happened to draw our first division champion Seattle Seahawks out of the cup. This was a good year, and I, I think this uh, this was also the beginning of the ends of the Mike Holmgren era, the last good year of the Mike Holmgren era. And in fact, if you want to be technical about the year 2007, the year 2007 also started in January with that uh, Patrick or Patrick uh, Tony Romo extra points debacle in Seattle, which resulted in the Seahawks winning a playoff game. So not a bad start to 2007 as well, but the actual season of 2007. Um, you know, Seahawks go 10 and 6, and a lot of Seahawks had some solid, solid seasons. First of all, the Seahawks themselves are top 10 in both offense and defense, ninth, ninth in offense, sixth in defense, and Matt Hasselbeck, who just just found it under uh, Mike Holmgren, just was, just was a different quarterback with Mike Holmgren at the helm. 28 touchdowns against just 12 picks, one of his better seasons. Bobby Ingram exploded for 1,100 yards. And then one of my favorite current TV personalities in football, Nate Burleson from Good Morning Football, when he was on the Seahawks, nine touchdown catches that year. So the offense had some pretty darn good seasons, but really the defense is what got most of the accolades. Yeah, I want to talk briefly about the balance of the offense before we swing to the defensive side, because if you look statistically, you mentioned Bobby Ingram, best year of his career, over 1,100 receiving yards. They get nine receiving touchdowns out of Nate Burleson. But just to list a few other receivers, Deion Branch nearly got to 700 receiving yards. DJ Hackett was their number four receiver, and DJ Hackett at 384 receiving yards. He never quite got to the ceiling I thought he was going to, but still a very productive number four receiver. And then I love, I get to mention this guy. Our listeners know how much I love Leonard Weaver. Leonard Weaver had a hell of a season as a receiver that year. He had 32 uh, reception, 39 receptions for 313 yards, a fullback in 2007. That's pretty impressive. You get to see what he could do with the football in his hands. And so you add all those weapons together. And even with Sean Alexander breaking down in the backfield, they barely got over 700 rushing yards out of him, three and a half yards per carry. Uh, Maurice Morris picked up the slack. He stepped in with almost 700 rushing yards and averaged four and a half yards per carry. So he was able to take that torch a bit and keep the running game going. No mistakes about it. This was a pass-first football team under Mike Holmgren. That's how they got to 10 wins that year and eventually advanced to the divisional round where Brett Favre and company took care of business. But let's talk defense real quick. This team was really a defensive team. We had seen in 2005 when they made the Super Bowl, a lot of the same players, that it was all about the offense. Sean Alexander's league MVP. Steve Hutchinson, Walter Jones up front, Chris Gray, Robbie Tobeck, one of the best offensive lines I've ever seen. They had a nice stable of receivers, Daryl Jackson and company there. This team in 2007, I mentioned how balanced they were on offense, but that defense, four pro bowlers, two first-team all pros, Patrick Kearney with 14 and a half sacks, 
at the defensive end position his first year with the team. He's a first-team All-Pro selection. Lofa Tatupu, first-team All-Pro selection, led the team with well over 100 tackles and four interceptions, his best season of his career. And they had several other guys really stepped up. Marcus Trufant had seven interceptions that year, and he made the Pro Bowl. And so this was a really fun defense to watch, and I think that's probably what was the most disappointing thing, seeing how the season ended with – them playing the Packers in that divisional round game, I still have a bad taste in my mouth about this game. <laughs> they scored two quick touchdowns to go up in front, and then Brett Favre and the snow took over, and suddenly the defense just couldn't get any stops to save their lives. Seattle couldn't move the football anymore. Again, once the snow hit, it was all Green Bay. And so that was one of the weirder games I remember in Seahawks playoff history because it looked out of the gate like they were going to blow the Packers out at Lambeau Field ended up getting torched by the Packers the last three and a half quarters. And that defense was, you know, if, if the Legion of Boom is the original trilogy, that defense was the prequels. <laughs> yeah, that they, was uh, one of the best defenses that they've ever had that year. Yeah. No, There's no doubt about it. They had a lot of star power at all three levels on that defense. 14 and a half sacks by Patrick Kearney, nine and a half by Julian Peterson. Their third place sack total was Daryl Tapp at seven sacks. So they had three guys who were better than the, the total the Seahawks had last year from Rasheem Green, the leader. So you could just that, – that just speaks to the depth they had that year. And, yeah, like you mentioned, four Pro Bowlers, two All-Pros. And they did, they did wipe the floor with the Redskins before they, the floor was swept by them, by the Packers, um, in that uh, divisional round. So, again, that was their third straight year they had gone – had won a playoff game. And the fourth straight year that they had won the division. So it, it's – and again, like with the last year of Alex or Sean Alexander, the the second to last year of Mike Holmgren, but really the 2008 season for Mike Holmgren was pretty lost. I don't know if they mailed it in or or things just didn't roll right. But this was really the last year of vintage Mike Holmgren in Seattle. They just they got old. It's plain and simple. You know, your best player in the backfield, Sean Alexander, the wheels fell off. Hasselbeck started to decline a little bit. Some of the receivers around him started to decline. The offensive line, Walter Jones, is at the end of his career, starts to have some knee problems. The defense loses some players. Patrick Kearney can never come close to replicating that first year in Seattle. And he was getting to be an older player, had some injury issues himself. They just, that next year, just couldn't get over the hump. And I think everybody thought that, when they changed coaches in 2009 that that team was going to be able to turn things around but unfortunately Jim Moore is one season <laughs> uh, we'll leave that for a whole other discussion we'll but <laughs> a very forgettable year for the Seahawks but that 2007 season when they got to the playoffs I really thought they had a chance to maybe make a run for one last Super Bowl with the way they were playing at the end of the year how they just blew out the Redskins the wild card round but just wasn't meant to be Packers ended up taking care of business. And then, if you may remember, Green Bay ended up losing that next week. So, uh, didn't get to the Super Bowl either. But nonetheless, it was a really solid season for the Seahawks. Now, let's talk quickly about the year 2007 away from the Seattle Seahawks. Because I think this was a very interesting year. As I mentioned earlier, the year after this 2008 is one of the more infamous years in American history with the stock market crash and uh, the housing crisis and all the things that happened that year. But 2007 was a, a pretty eventful year and for the most part for good reason. Yeah. I mean, if in, when you talk about pop culture, of course, the very popular video games came out, Call of Duty 4, Modern Warfare, Mass Effect. And uh, 
I, I know you are all about that, Corbin, more so than me. But uh, if you're if you're again like my age, I'm 28 years old, and so yeah, 2007 prime high school years. I mean, if, with the video games coming out, the movies coming out, that was that was maybe it's more. It seems better than it was just because I was in high school. But those are some good times, especially those video games. <laughs> yeah, there were some pretty good games that came out that year. I've never been a huge Modern Warfare fan, but Mass Effect is pretty good. And I will admit in 2007, I was still playing Gears of War frequently because <laughs> that's my favorite game. And the original came out the year before. So I was playing that one. I still occasionally put the original Gears of War in to play the uh, multiplayer. But So this was a prime time for video games coming out. As far as movies go, a couple of my favorite movies that came out that year the movie Shooter with Mark Wahlberg is fantastic. I've watched it four or five times, and it's an excellent uh, thriller slash shooter. I mean, it fits the name perfectly. And uh, so that's one that I really like from that time. Spider-Man 3 came out. I, I liked that franchise. That movie was not that as was good. That was the as- uh, emo Tobey Maguire one. <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. Uh, Super Bad came out that year at McLovin and Company. So that was, that was a good movie that came out in 2007. And... One other fun fact that I just want to throw out there, just to show where technology was going, that was the first year that the iPhone originally came out, the original model, and now we're on iPhone 80. So the progress that we have made is substantial in the cell phone world. Yeah, on a selfish note, 2007, uh, living in San Diego, with those uh, historic wildfires that devastated our area, I remember standing on my roof, and I could just do a circle and see flames, not smoke, flames all around, not like super close, but in the distance, just orange glowing flames throughout my house. And the, uh, the main thing of that year was uh, President Bush and the governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, actually landed Marine One on my football field in high school, San Pasquale High School in Escondido, to assess the damage of those wildfires in 07. A week of school was canceled. One of our football games got canceled. It was crazy. And I actually kind of liken the pandemic a little bit to what I was feeling then. I mean, obviously, it was just a week and very localized, but that's kind of how I felt. And 2007 was crazy. The Mitchell Report for baseball broke out, broke the steroid era, steroid era wide open. And I was going to mention that one. Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, that, that really was, uh, shook found baseball to its foundation. It shook sports to its foundation. I mean, when when you start to see all these star baseball players that you had beloved over the years that were part of this report. And then of course, Jose Canseco, not long after that came out with his book, which was an interesting book to say the (laughs) least. I don't know how much of it was true or not coming from Jose Canseco, but um, yeah, that definitely rocked the baseball and sports world. No question about it. It was just overall though. It was a pretty good year, at least compared to the one that came after it. 2008 was a disaster, not quite 2020 levels. 2020 is on a whole other level in that regard, <laughs> but uh, we'll all get through. There's going to be fine, but I'm just recollecting 2008 here when really we're supposed to be looking at 2007, a lot of really cool stuff that came out that year. And for me personally, it was an exciting year because 2007 going into 2008 was my senior year in high school. And so last year that I got to ever play football and baseball and all that kind of stuff. A lot of really cool stuff going on at that time. And uh, it doesn't feel like it has been 12 or 13 years ago, but that's how long it's been. I feel like a really old man, just like my bald head shows off. But anyway, when we come back for the third quarter, we'll get back to talking some football here, continuing our Seahawks all-time top 100 list. We're going to transition into the 80s. 90 to 86 are going to be the five slots that we look at today. Don't go away. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, 
your team every day. Chain stores have different price tiers for professional mechanics and do-it-yourselfers. Why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? RockAuto.com's prices are the same for everybody and are reliably low. RockAuto.com always offers the lowest prices possible rather than changing prices based on what the market will bear like airlines do. They have everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Whether it's for your classic or daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com catalog is unique, remarkably easy to navigate, and all the parts are available for your vehicle. Choose the brands, specifications, and prices you prefer. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck right locked in in their how-did-you-hear-about-us box so they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. rockauto.com Welcome back. Glad to have you joining us here on the Locked On Seahawks podcast. This is your host, Corbin Smith, joined by Nick Rockin' Lee. Really excited to be discussing some Seahawks stuff here on Blue Friday. It's been a really challenging week for a lot of you and uh, for us as well. It really has rocked everyone at the core of the stuff that's going on in this country right now. But nonetheless, Again, hopefully the opportunity to talk some football here, get your mind off of some of the things that are going on in the world. Hopefully uh, you're enjoying the show here. So let's talk Seahawks Top 100. We've done the first 10 slots, Rob Rang and I. Nick, this is the first time that you get to jump into the fray looking at our list, which was created from seven writers at the Seahawk Maven. That includes the two of us. And all of us had some vastly different rankings, and we came up with averages. So there's one player in particular here that's going to show how that law of averages really works. So let's start with number 90, a player that came in at number 77 on my list. I value him higher than most of the other people on our staff and that's receiver Daryl Turner as I called him the burner Turner and this guy was a dynamite weapon for four years unfortunately we didn't get to see much beyond that because he couldn't get away from drugs and it ended up derailing his career but for four years he was a dynamic threat in Seattle's offense yeah second round pick in 1984 and I mean 36 touchdowns in four years is pretty darn good at receiver and 30 touchdowns in his first three years. You know who never had 30 touchdowns in three seasons? Steve Largent. He never had that stretch as a, as a Seahawks receiver. So that just speaks to how impressive Daryl Turner's run, brief as it was, but it was a solid, very productive uh, career. And, oh, man, if, if he could have played at least two, maybe just even two, three more years, he skyrockets up this list if he maintains that kind of production. Because 13 receiving touchdowns led the NFL in his second year in 1985 and was just an uber, uber productive receiver. And it's just a shame that we didn't get to see his full career because, like I said, he, he rivaled Largent in, in that brief spurt of production. Who knows what he could have done with another five, six years. I've always wondered what life would have looked like if he continued to play at a high level into his prime. I mean, that's the thing. I, I think he was just getting into his prime. He's 26 years old. Yeah. And so you would have had him and Steve Largent, and eventually you could have drafted Brian Blades to team up with him at the end of his career. Uh, they they could have had one of the best receiver trios in the late 80s that we've seen. And 
that might have helped Steve Largent remain a little bit more productive for longer because he would have had a little bit more help. But again, unfortunately, things just went awry for Daryl Turner. But just a couple other stats that jumped out to me. The reason he's so high on my list, I, I just look at the fact those four years, the touchdowns obviously are ridiculous. But he also averaged 18 and a half yards per reception for his career. That's incredible. This is a guy that just was a big play machine. Big plays waiting to happen. Dave Craig loved to launch the ball downfield to him. And teams it really created a conundrum for him because, well, we got to deal with Steve Largent, but now we have to deal with this guy. And, again, it's just unfortunate we couldn't see that tandem work together any longer than what we did. But I still think when you look at how productive that he was those four years, he absolutely has to be in the top 100. For me, it was the top 80. Now, going to 89 – this is a player that ended up coming in higher than what I had him on my particular list, linebacker Bruce Schultz, one of the more underrated players from Seattle's defense in the 1980s. And they, by the way, had some pretty darn good defenses in the mid-80s, several of those years that they made the playoffs. And he was kind of an unsung hero that didn't necessarily get attention because you had Kenny Easley, you had John Harris, eventually Eugene Robinson coming in, Joe Nash, Jacob Green, and this guy was a very productive player that unfortunately kind of got overshadowed by all the star power that was around him. In seven seasons, the, the, the tackle stat wasn't quantified quite yet back in those days. Um, but five interceptions, nine and a half sacks. And you, you wonder how high, much higher he'd be on this list if tackles were an official stat back then. And to try to quantify this a little bit, because when I was making the list, I really he was one of the guys I struggled with. Just because I obviously I'm like I said, 28 years old. I didn't see late 80 Seahawks football or, or 80 Seahawks football. I, I've watched a lot of. I actually been watching a lot of YouTube to catch up with uh, my 90s and 80s Seahawks knowledge. Um, and he is one guy that, that jumps off the list. And um, to try and quantify this a little better, I know I know this is very an very imperfect stat, not by any means refined. But Pro Football Reference has an approximate value. Mm-hmm. And they try, they try to quantify a season, kind of like war in baseball in a little way. Um, and, and during his Seahawks career, Schultz had 50, a 51 approximate value, which just to put that in perspective, Cam Chancellor had 50, Michael Bennett had 46. So I, again, I know that's not a perfect stat, but that just kind of puts maybe him in a, in a ballpark of how good he actually was. Yeah, and I, I really would love to see what the tackle numbers looked like because watching games from the mid-'80s, this guy was all over the place. And he, this is the kind of player Pete Carroll would have loved because oh, when yeah. he was drafted, he was a tall, lanky, was six foot six, kind of skinny. Nobody thought he was going to be able to play outside linebacker. And then there was, you know, he's too skinny to play defensive end, so he's kind of one of those tweeners. But he ended up making it work. He started all nine games in a strike-shortened season as a rookie. Had a really productive year. Intercept an interception. He returned for a touchdown and put up some pretty good numbers the rest of his career. I would have loved to see the tackle numbers, though, tackle for loss and all that stuff, because I'm sure that that would have dramatically increased the you know the way fans look at him. It would have it would have made fans realize just how good of a player he really was. So I definitely think he belongs on the list. It's just like you said, it's tough to quantify where somebody that doesn't necessarily have statistics to back up his play, trying to fit him into a list like this. Now at number 88, this to me, I'm going to be honest with you, Nick, is the most controversial top 100 pick for us just because – I look at the stats that Norm Johnson had in his career. I know that he was a first-team All-Pro, and that carried a lot of weight in these rankings because 
there aren't a lot of players in Seahawks history that have been first team all pros. Norm Johnson is one of them, but he made 69% of his kicks during his time with the Seattle Seahawks. And he made some big kicks in his career. Don't get me wrong. He is one of the top two or three kickers they've ever had, but I didn't have him in my top hundred. We had a few people on our panel that had him in the top 70, which really surprised me, but He's, he's a name, and he's a guy that, again, he made some pretty big kicks during his career, and I think the fact he played a long time in Seattle also bared some weight in that first-team All-Pro selection proved to be something that really stood out to most of our writers. You can't not have the franchise all-time leading scorer in the top 100. I understand he was not the greatest kicker the Seahawks have ever had. I think that's that maybe I would lean towards Stephen Hauschka, that's uh, what Rob and I said yesterday. Yep. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I actually had him admittedly pretty high um, because he was the all-time leading scorer. To be, to be honest, I wasn't looking as much into the season-by-season accuracy amounts. I was just looking at his career as a whole. And when you factor in, he's the franchise's all-time leading scorer <laughs> um, on top of an all-pro Pro Bowl season. I mean, that carries a ton of weight for me. Um, and so over nine seasons, he is one of the better overall kickers the Seahawks have had. The longevity scores a lot of points with me too. Yeah, I get that the, the percentages aren't optimal. And, you know, it's maybe a different era as well. Think how many um, points he could have scored if he made yeah. <laughs> 75% of his kicks. I, yeah, if yeah. he makes Kauschka field goals, that's, a, he's, that's never going to get broken. Um, so, yeah, for me, those are the things that carried weight for me and why I voted him so high. Yeah, and I think a lot of those same arguments would be made by several writers of our other writers. And I guess that's what I love about this, though, is you get a lot of different perspectives that make sense. Everybody has different uh, criteria that they look at here. Now, let's get to one that was much more consistent, and that's at 87. Some of our listeners will be surprised that this player cracked their top 100, but I think you could make an argument that Justin Britt is one of the three best centers that the Seahawks have ever had. I would put Blair Bush and obviously Max Unger ahead of him. But I think at that point, that's about um, Robbie Tobeck as well. Robbie Tobeck uh, didn't play his entire career in Seattle, but Tobeck was a really good center too. But I think top three or four, you can make the argument Justin Britt belongs there. I know he was never a top 10 center at any time in his career, but I think you could say he was a really solid top 15 upper half of the, half of the league guy. And he was a starter for them for five years at that position. And he started some games at tackle and guard, too. He showed off some versatility. I absolutely think Justin Britt belongs in this list, even if he was never a pro bowler, never really deserving of that. He was a rock-solid view of consistency for the Seahawks and an offensive line that lacked consistency throughout his tenure for the most part. I mean, he started games in 60% of the offensive line positions which speaks to his versatility. He was a mainstay for six seasons on the offensive line, an anchor at center for three and a half until that, that bad injury. And the Seahawks, I mean, we don't need to tell, we don't need to tell anybody, this is preaching to the choir, how bad the Seahawks offensive line was for at least the first part of his tenure in Seattle and most of his tenure in Seattle. And it was never really Justin Britt's fault. He was usually the one that was kind of wrangling him in and, and being a bit more consistent than everybody else. And he was the one guy that you could count on to be, to be productive and to be consistent in an offensive line that was porous, wet tissue paper at best. And he, he was one of the ones you didn't worry about. He doesn't get enough credit for holding things together 
on an awful offensive line like that. So I think that take that you got to take that into consideration too, is the offensive lines he played on and the teams he played with. I mean, we're talking some of the better teams in Seahawks history, starting in 2014 with the, the year they actually got to the Super Bowl for a second straight year. That's when he started. And then the, he's made the playoffs every year, but one as a, as a member of the Seahawks. So team success and dealing with just subpar play around him, I think should play a part in, in him being ranked so high. The lack of continuity, especially looking back at the first couple of years that he was a starting center, when he took over at that position, you could just see that lack of continuity around him. And yet he was that one pillar that you could rely on, the leader that you could rely on. And he became a very popular player in that locker room too, not just with the offensive linemen, but just the team in general. So he definitely deserves more credit than he gets. Never was a star in the position, but he was a reliable starter that was consistently able to get the job done. And for the length of time that he did it at multiple positions, he's a top 100 player for the Seahawks. Now number 86, wrapping up today's section of our countdown this is one of the more inconsistent guys on our list. He was as high as 58 on one list, and there was one list that he wasn't even in the top 100, and that's Jermaine Curse, who has made some of the greatest plays in franchise history, the game-winning touchdown in that epic comeback against the Packers in that 2014 NFC Championship game, the catch after the ball bounced off of his foot the following week in the Super Bowl that almost won the Seahawks back-to-back Super Bowls. We're not, we're not going to talk about what happened after that, but he made some of the most recognizable plays in franchise history. I think the reason he's not higher on this list is just the fact his overall numbers in five years of the Seahawks were average at best. Yeah, I mean, he never had a 700-yard season as, as a member of the Seahawks. In fact, his 2017 season with the Jets was his career high in 810. He had five touchdowns and 685 yards in 2015. But I think the point you made is why I put him on the top 100 is just the the clutch, just, just the recognizable. He, he just showed up when you needed him. I mean, that that touchdown catch to in the NFC title game after all that happened in the NFC title game against the Packers in 2014 and finally completing the comeback and just the relief that – you're going back to the Super Bowl, and Jermaine Curse caught that touchdown. I will never forget that moment, so as long as I live. I, I understand what happened in the Super Bowl, but still getting to a second Super Bowl in a row is something very few franchises can say. And Jermaine Curse sent the Seahawks to that second straight Super Bowl. And then, like you mentioned, if the Seahawks finish the dang job in Super Bowl 49 and win that game, that catch was the play of the game. Not only the play of the game, I think that is – in the same breath, talked about in the same breath as David Tyree. I think that catch was that improbable, that amazing. People are so quick to forget about it because of what obviously would happen next in the next few plays, but just the improbability and athleticism that took to make that catch. I mean, I understand that the Julian, the, I think it was Julian Edelman against the, the Patriots against the Falcons, that similar catch. I mean, he's talked in the same breath as those guys. If, if he makes, he does make that catch and they do win that Super Bowl, that's how big that catch was. We talked about Justin Britt's consistency. I will give Jermaine Curse a lot of credit. I mean, there, there was consistency in areas you didn't want to see. He had some issues with drops throughout his time in Seattle. But when the game was on the line, that's who Russell Wilson was looking for. Regular season, postseason, you name it. He seemed to always be the guy that Russell Wilson knew. I don't care if you dropped three passes earlier and one of them got intercepted, just like the Packers game, the NFC Championship game. Curse was having a horrible game. Yes, he was. Until that play. But Russell Wilson never gave up on him, and he always was looking for Curse because he just had that knack 
for coming up big in clutch moments. And I think just by that self, he deserved to be in the top 100 list. And I think when you look at consistency-wise, he was usually in that 500 to 650 receiving yard range per year, scored a handful of touchdowns as a good number two, number three receiver for the Seahawks on the best teams in franchise history on a team that didn't throw the ball as much as some other teams either. So that impacted his numbers a little bit. He's absolutely a top 100 player. I actually had him in this range. I had him at 82. So this is about where I would have put him at coming in number 86. 50 seemed a little high, but again, it depends on your criteria. If you're looking at playoff accomplishments, he's in the top 50 easily. One of the best playoff players the Seahawks have ever had. A really good five-year run playing in the Pacific Northwest, coming from Washington and then joining the Seahawks. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Nick at Nick Lee 51. Make sure to check out our podcast and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever podcast platform that you decide to use. Make sure to check out our website, LockedOnSeahawks.com. When we come back from the weekend, we're going to continue this countdown. We're going to get into the lower 80s. We're going to do 85 to 81 on our countdown. And then we're also going to look back at another previous year in Seahawks history in our Turn Back the Clock segment. Enjoy your weekend. Go Hawks.